How are y'all doing tonight? All right, let's try it again like Brock. How are y'all doing tonight? That's good. Thank you for leading the way, Brock. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Hey, well, I hope you have this. Um, if you do not, we're going to have some uh, leaders that are in the back. If you guys wouldn't mind grabbing some off the tables, just making sure. Throw your hand up if you don't have one of these. Here you go. Y'all, mm. Just start making your way through. We'll pass them around. Uh, we won't, it'll be a couple minutes till we jump in to super, super important stuff. Um, hey, so... If you're not aware, we are in this series. My goodness, there's a lot of you that don't have one. We are in this series called uh, Colossians. And the reason that it's called Colossians is because we are walking through the book of Colossians. And so those journals that we're putting in your hands right now, I'm sure some of you are guilty of this, those are for you to take with you and then bring back. Okay? That's okay. It's for you to take with you and then bring back. The idea is that that would give you uh, a little bit of a, a way to walk through the book of Colossians with us following the same scripture breakdown that we're going to be using over the course of these next eight weeks. And so that is the purpose of those journals. I had some guys ask me at the end of the service uh, last week, like, hey, so we want to do this thing. We want to take the challenge to spend eight weeks in Colossians, which if you, if, you didn't, if you weren't here last week, that is the challenge that we're issuing to all of you, uh, is that we want to spend eight weeks in this book of Colossians together, like you for your personal devotion time. But I had some guys ask me last week, well, how do we do that? Do you want us to like just read over and over again the passage that we're going through at Revive? Do we just read the whole thing every day? Is it a chapter at a time? And uh, that is totally up to you. However you would like to do it, the way that the book is structured, it's divided up into the weeks that we're going to be studying in here. And so it's kind of designed that way, but man, it's totally up to you guys. However you would like to study this book, we just want to do it together because I'm telling you, there are some incredible truths in this book that you're not going to want to miss. I got you. Here. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you, sir. Anybody from here? Oh, oh, perfect. There you go. There you go. I'm running low. All right, anybody else? Perfect. And I'm back with the one that I started with. So if you are new, uh, if you, it is your first time in this series joining us, go ahead and turn to week two. We are going to be in week two of Colossians this week. Uh, if you're turning there in your Bible, that is Colossians chapter one. We're going to start in verse 15 today. Uh, but I want to start by showing you something that I think is going to, to be honest with you, I think it's going to divide the room. There might be some people, after we put this thing up on the screens, there might be, um, your friends might not want to talk to you after you see this, depending on which way you lean. This thing has, it has divided households. It has turned mother against son. It has turned father against mother. It has caused a rift throughout the entire world. So I'm just going to let Alexis go ahead and throw it up on the screen. Okay. So based on your reaction, I'm guessing you've seen it before. So let's just go ahead and get this out of the way. How many of you see blue and black? 
All right, put them down. How many of you weirdos see white and gold? Really? Okay, so at this point, at this point, what you're probably doing, all this talking that we hear, is some person that probably sees white and gold trying to convince their friends, no, look, if you look at the top, it's clearly gold, and then it gets a little darker on the way down. Listen, it's black and blue, okay? And here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced, I'll just go ahead and spoil your fun, I know that you white and gold people, there's like a giant group text or an inside joke that you guys just think is funny to drag all of us black and blue seers through. It's not funny. If you really think it, you're crazy. Lawson, your hand was up when I didn't even see a color. What? Orange? Red and gold. Wow, never heard that before. Awesome. Well, hey, Alexis, you can take that down. Listen, y'all, the reason that I wanted to start with that is because we can all remember when that, when that thing, uh, whatever it may be, if, matter of fact, if you type in on Google the dress, that's what comes up, fun fact. Um, so we all remember when that made its way into our culture and it split it right down the middle, right? So tonight, as we study the book of Colossians, we're going to be talking about a topic that is honestly more divisive than that. Uh, one that in the same way, I joked about it earlier, but this topic has turned people against each other. Uh, th this topic, where you stand on this, uh, on this topic, has really, man, it has divided society, it has divided the world, and that is the topic of Jesus Christ. See, the reason that we're going to be talking tonight about the topic of Jesus Christ is because, like I mentioned last week, the church in Colossae, uh, they faced this cultural pressure. They, they faced a doctrine, which just simply means a teaching, that went against the divinity, which means the godliness of the person of Jesus Christ. To put that into simpler terms, basically what was being taught in Colossae was that Jesus, uh, many people thought Jesus is a great guy. Many people thought that Jesus was like equal to an angel, but they did not hold that Jesus Christ was God. That was a cultural pressure that uh, the Colossian church was facing. And so, uh, the reason that we're talking about that tonight is because in the same way that that church faced this rift, this division, I don't think we're too far off in our world today, right? I mean, there are all kinds of different beliefs about who this person, Jesus Christ, was. And depending on who you ask, you'll get a different answer. Like if you were to ask a Jehovah's Witness, Jesus uh, was created by God as the archangel Michael, uh, before the physical world even existed, uh, he was lesser than God. If you were to ask uh, someone who uh, subscribes to the Muslim faith, this person uh, would say that Jesus is a prophet, very similar to like Abraham and Isaiah. It, Jesus was just a prophet and he was in no way God. If you talk to somebody who is uh, a Mormon, uh, man, they would say that God and Mary had a son. They named him Jesus. And if you do good things, then you too can be like Jesus. You can be a son or a daughter of God. 
You have the atheistic worldview that would say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Wherever it is that, that people land, you can walk up to 100 people and you're likely to get 100 different answers. And, and the thing that is true is that every single person in this room walked in with some sort of an idea about who that person Jesus is. And, and so tonight, um, we're going to answer that question. And we're going to let Paul, in this book, do the teaching for us tonight. We're simply going to be walking through verses 15 through 23 of that first chapter in Colossians. We're going to walk through it verse by verse. And in this passage, what Paul is really doing is he's setting up an argument against that cultural pressure, that false teaching that I mentioned earlier, that Jesus was less than God. And so the way that we're going to go about this tonight is we're going to simply ask two questions. Two very simple questions that you have to know the answer to. Who is Jesus and what will you do with him? Who is Jesus and what will you do with him? If Paul's message tonight were to be boiled down into one sentence, it's this. Jesus comes before everything in my life. Because I came before everything in his. Jesus comes before everything in my life because I came before everything in his. So what we're going to do, I, I told you, we're going to walk through this passage verse by verse. And I'll just tell you from the get-go, this is a theologically rich passage. Like, it is deep, okay? It is one of, if, in my opinion, probably the most theologically deep passage in all of Paul's writings, and so what we're going to do today is we're, we're going to rely on the Holy Spirit to speak through me uh, because this is something that I'm telling you, when you grasp it, it will change everything about the way that you live. All right? And so let's start reading in uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. It says, he, and, and I'm going to just exchange all of these pronouns for Jesus because that's who we're talking about, okay? So, so we're going to say this, Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. And we're going to stop right there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So the first thing that we read about Jesus in this passage here, answering that question, who is Jesus? That's where we're starting. The, the first thing that we come to is something that should make you as a reader, should make a little light bulb come on in your head. And, and it should make you go, man, there, I, I might not know what that statement means, that he is the image of the invisible God. But I know what's being said here is that something is different about Jesus. Like there is something about him that is not, uh, he's not just another normal person. He's not just a carpenter that was born in Bethlehem. There's something significant. So what does that statement mean? That Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Well, in the book of John, John uh, in chapter 1 verse 18 writes, No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, that's Jesus, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So what Paul is getting at here when he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, is he's basically saying God, through Jesus, made what was invisible, visible. He, he made himself, who had not been seen by human eyes, he made himself visible through his Son, Jesus. 
when the word image is used there, it's not to suggest that Jesus is just like a picture of God or just similar to God. It's not just like, man, Jesus is, uh, he's God-like. That is not at all what Paul is getting at. It's, it's not just to say that Jesus resembles God, but it's to say that Jesus represents God. In other words, everything that God is, Paul says Jesus is. He carries the same authority. He carries the same power. He carries the same nature. In short, the claim that Paul makes here is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's the answer to our question, who is Jesus? And at this point, this is where the message of Jesus starts to become a little divisive, right? Because to make the claim that Jesus is God is to hold that the things that Jesus said about himself are true. And Jesus made some pretty crazy claims about himself, right? Uh, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So all of a sudden, the message of Jesus, that Jesus is God, becomes divisive because it's exclusive. And our culture doesn't like exclusive. We like for your truth to be able to coexist with my truth, and our truths can all work together. We, we don't think that there's any objective truth. And the fact of the matter is, man, if I jump on a plane going from here to Jacksonville, Florida, and, and someone who's sitting next to me tells me, man, I can't wait to get to Denver. Like, we, we can play that game all day and go, yeah, man, like, we'll get there one day. Like, we can do that. But at the end of the day, there's an objective truth. Like, we're going to arrive at one destination. And so, we live in this culture where, where we don't like exclusivity. But, man, it, we, we look, they look at it as hatred, but really exclusivity is love. Jesus, what we're saying by being exclusive is he is the answer. And we want that for every person on this planet. So... Why is it that we can make a statement like that? It's because of what Paul says next. Look at the end of verse 15. Uh, He says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, when you hear that word firstborn, you go, oh, like I was the firstborn. My mom had three kids and I'm the oldest, so I'm the firstborn. Don't think of it in that capacity. That is not what, uh, what it's saying here. It's firstborn, not first in order but first in rank. Jesus is firstborn of all creation because Jesus is first in rank. Paul is making the argument that there is no one above Jesus. Speaks of authority and inheritance. It distinguishes Jesus from the rest of all creation in that he is not creation, but he is creator. Scripture says, if we continue to read in verse 16, it says that by Him, by Jesus, in verse 16, by Jesus, all things were created. Now, we say that a lot, right? If you grew up in church, you hear all the time uh, that Jesus, uh, he created everything, God created everything. But I don't know that we grasp fully the magnitude of what it is that we're saying. See, what this means is that everything on the planet that you lay your eyes on, at some point can be traced back to a time when it was spoken into existence by Jesus. 
That, that when the world was being created, when, when light was spoken into existence, that Jesus was the creating agent. That he is the one, the part of the Godhead that, uh, that executed the creation of everything. And here's the thing about that, is that when you create something, you automatically assume superiority to it. When you create something, when you're the designer, you become the definer. When you create something, you automatically assume authority and superiority over it. I've been super interested lately. I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen this on the news, but um, Queen Elizabeth passed away. Uh, the, the Queen of England has passed away. I'm not super familiar with the royal family and all this. Like, I'm not one of the people who, who follows that really closely, but it's intriguing to me. Uh, because of all of like the pomp and circumstance that surrounds her, um, like her, her burial and, and people paying their respects, like this was crazy. So I'm, I'm watching the, um, not the news, but some, it was probably on YouTube or something. And um, I, I hear that basically what they've done, so her uh, casket rested in like a cathedral for uh, like a span of a week or something like that, a few days. And the people uh, lined up to be able to stop in and pay their respects. And um, at one point, this line to get into uh, this room to pay your respects to the queen was a 12 and a half hour wait. And people stood in line all day to wait to pay their respects to the queen. Like, it is crazy to me how loved she was by all people. Um, and it's so interesting to look at her uh, and to go, man, look at all of the people who came to see her, all of the pomp and the circumstance surrounding her, her burial and her funeral. This is truly, in seeing this, this is truly one of the most powerful people who has ever lived. But she was created. She, just like us and like everything else, was created. And sure, there were a lot of people that fell under her rule, but ultimately, like everyone else, she falls under someone else's rule. She falls under the rule of the one who created all things, that is Jesus. Because when you are the creator, you are automatically uh, superior. You, you have authority over all of your creation. So to acknowledge that Jesus created all things is to acknowledge that all things belong to him. To acknowledge that Jesus created all things is to acknowledge simultaneously that all things belong to him. And here's the thing. Included in all things is you and me. When we see there, so in, uh, in verse 16, let's read the rest of it. It says, uh, for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You and I fall into that category of all things. And so when we realize who Jesus is, the beautiful thing is we discover who we are. That's why this is such an important question for us to come to terms with. Because when we, when we realize who Jesus is, we come to terms with who we are. Like those big existential questions that everybody on the planet at some point in their life asks. Who am I? And why am I here? Like psychology 101. Those questions are answered when we, when we know the answer to who Jesus is. 
like at the core of who Jesus is, we find out who you and I are. Who am I and why am I here? It's very, very clearly laid out for us in verse 16. It says, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And so you can literally read yourself into that verse. You, you can read yourself right into that verse. What, what's your name? Andrew. Okay. So literally, you can read yourself into that verse. You can say, Andrew was created by Jesus and for Jesus. That's how you were created, and that's why you got created. That's who you are, and that's why you're here. Those answers come in when we figure out who Jesus is. You are the unique, special, precious, miraculous, supernatural creation of Jesus Christ. That is who you are. And your value is inherent in your creation by Jesus. And, and no success, no failure, no job, no accomplishment, no pleasure, no boy, no girl, no money can ever trump what is already true about you who was created by Jesus sitting here right now. That can never be taken away. And not only, though, are you created by Jesus, but that verse also says that all things were created not only by Jesus, but also for Jesus. And so I don't know for you what the specific lane that you run in is. Like, I don't know uh, what your focus is in school. I know we have, like, um, kinesiology and nursing majors. Yeah, I know there's about a thousand kinesiology majors at this school. Uh, we have, you know, at Truett, we got a bunch of Christian studies majors. We have business majors. Like, there are so many different lanes that people run in. And so I don't know where it is that you fall in that. Uh, but what I do know is your purpose. It's laid out very clearly here in Scripture, and it is found in the answer as to who Jesus is. Your purpose is to know God. And your purpose not only is to know God, but it is to make him known. To reflect his glory back onto him and shine your light on him for his glory every day that you live. This is our identity. And y'all, when it comes to culture today, I think that one of the problems that is the most prevalent in our culture, in our generation, is that there is an ongoing identity crisis. Because what we see is a bunch of people that don't know who Jesus is, and that is the key to knowing who you are. And if you don't know who you are, then what results is an identity crisis. You don't know where your identity is in. When you don't know who Jesus is, you'll never know who you are. And what happens when you don't know who your identity is, who you are, you begin to build your identity in other things, and it leads you down roads that you never thought you would go down. And, and so you begin uh, to place your identity in, in things like money. And, and you walk down that road and you get to the end of it and you realize, man, there's never a way that I can have enough. That to build your identity on that is something that can only ever lead you, leave you empty. Or you build your, uh, your identity in a boy or a girl, some relationship, and you walk down that road. And you realize once you've made the mistake of giving yourself away or taking something that was not yours to take, you realize that you are left in a, in a place that you never anticipated being in. These are the consequences of building our identities in things that our identity is not found in. 
If we are followers of Jesus, then we have to know that our identity is in Jesus. And if we're followers of Jesus, then we need to help everyone who's not a follower of Jesus realize that that is where their identity lies. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. This is a really interesting one. I think this one, this one is crazy that in Jesus, all things hold together. See, when the universe was created, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus was already there. He was before all things. Jesus has no beginning and consequently has no end. He's always been there. He's before all things, and he's also the one holding all things together. Like, have you ever wondered why it is that the earth remains so close to the sun that we don't freeze, yet far enough away from the sun that we don't, uh, that we don't burn up? Have you ever wondered why we're in this cycle uh, of seasons, and it has never changed, fall, winter, spring, summer? Why every single day the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. It's because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father holding all things together. And that goes far beyond the physical, right? Like it goes far beyond what we can see. Matter of fact, it has everything to do with you and me and the circumstances that we experience every day. No matter what circumstance we experience, Jesus is at the center of it, holding everything together. That means, man, that when, when you come to a place where it feels like life is falling apart, and you've lost a loved one, you get some horrible news, didn't get accepted into a program that you thought you would, didn't get a job that you, you, you had prayed about, in that circumstance, Jesus is at the center of it, and he's holding all things together. So when, when I was a kid, um, one of the things that my parents would, would give me to play with was toy cars. And there's two kinds of toy cars that you can play with. There's a wind-up car, which you guys know what these are, right? You start it here, and you back it up, click, 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 click. And then you just take your fingers off of it, and that thing goes until it hits something or goes over the stairs or, you know, whatever it is, right? Like, those are kind of the lamer toys. It's really not much you can do with it other than, whoop. That's about it, right? But there's a, there's a more fun toy car that I remember very specifically whenever I was growing up, and that is a remote-controlled car. Wow. Some response from the front row here. See, a remote-controlled car is different because it's not just like a wind-up, let it fly, and see what happens. When, it, when, when you are in control of a remote-controlled car, you are behind the wheel of that thing. You control every turn, every, uh, every bit of, of movement that it makes. Is, it is planned and it is executed by you because of those joysticks that are in your hand, right? That's what a remote control car is. Here's the incredible thing about Jesus and the way that, that he holds all things together. This world was not created by Jesus like a wind-up car where he was just like, all right, let's get this thing ready to go, and then boom, we're just going to see what happens. He didn't just create it and then let us figure it out. Jesus is behind the wheel, holding all things together. He is intricately involved in every single aspect of each and every one of our lives. 
He did not just create you and then say, figure it out. He is with you in every single situation because he is God, and that is who he is. In verse 18, Paul gives us three titles for Jesus. Now what we're going to do is we're going to answer this question. We answered the question, who is Jesus? But now we have to answer the question, what will you do with him? What is it that you will do, uh, that you will do with Jesus? Because what Paul has done up to this point is he has told us, Jesus reigns supreme. That's what he wants us to gather from everything that he said up until this point. But the question is, does he reign supreme in your life? And so now we have to ask that question, what will we do with Jesus? So let's read verse 18. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul gives us three titles for Jesus there. He says that he is the head of the church, which just means that he has authority over all of those who have placed their faith in him. He says that he, he is before all things, uh, that he is the beginning, which, which again uh, establishes the fact that there is nothing before Jesus, there's nothing that comes after Jesus. But then that word firstborn comes back into play. And not, this time Jesus is not the firstborn of all creation, but, but what does it say? It says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, that's kind of interesting. Firstborn from the dead, here, it points to the empty tomb. That incredible truth that we sang about earlier, the firstborn from the dead points to the empty tomb. That Jesus is the first one and the only one to ever rise from the dead. And you Truett students, you, you Christian studies majors, you're going, what about Lazarus? If you're like a junior or senior, been there a minute, you're like, what about Jairus' daughter? What about the widow's son? See, there were three other people in Scripture that we read about that, that Jesus actually raised from the dead. Here's the difference. Those people were resuscitated. In other words, they're dead now. Jesus was resurrected. And he is alive today, now, and forevermore. That's the difference. He is the firstborn for all creation. Or he is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus says about himself in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. He's the firstborn from the dead. And because of that, Paul argues, he has the supremacy. And supremacy, you're going to hear that word a lot. It simply means this. This is the Webster's definition. The state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. And again, the question is not, does Jesus have the supremacy? The question is, does Jesus have the supremacy in your life? Does he sit on the throne of your heart? Paul says, let's read 19 and 20. In verse 19 and 20, uh, he says this, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to Jesus himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. So not only did Jesus create you, but he also gave his life to redeem you. Therefore, Jesus gets the supremacy from every breath that you take for the rest of your life. Jesus comes before everything in my life because I came before everything in his. Remember that? Jesus comes before everything in my life because I came before everything in his. And Paul argues uh, that not only did Jesus create us, again, he redeemed us. And the way that he did that was by means of the cross. Now, when I was, um, I was in ninth grade, and um, my dad received a job offer. We lived in Jacksonville, Florida at the time. My dad received a job offer. He worked with, like, power plants, like, power-generating plants, and he received this job offer to move our family up to Kingsport, Tennessee. Job offer looked kind of enticing, and so he packed our family up. And we drove up there to figure out what Kingsport was like. We wanted to figure out like what the schools were like and the just landscape, all that different stuff. And so I'll never forget. This was so crazy. We pull into this visitor center or some sort of something. And um, I open the car door and I am immediately just hit with some odor. That's not where you thought it was going, was it, did you? I'm immediately, like, like a freight train, hit with this smell that I cannot put into words. And I'm like, what happened out here? Like, I'm looking under the car. Did we, like, kill something? Is it stuck in our tire? Like, what is going on? And then a car pulls in next to us. They get out of the car. They walk on inside. I'm like, is it me? Like, what, like, what, why, are, why do I smell this? And they're acting like they can't smell a thing at all. So we move on. We go to, like, the next place, check out a school. We're all like, what, in the, what is going on with this, this place? Same thing happens. We get out of the car, horrible smell. Person next to us just walking like this is totally normal to them. Here's what happened. Kingsport is built around this, like, manufacturing facility, plant, something. And that, whatever it is that they're making puts off some horrible odor. Well, the people that we saw that were acting like it was totally normal, to them, it was totally normal because they lived there. And so to them, something that they had been surrounded by for years and years and years, they just got used to. But, but for me, someone who had just gotten there, man, it, it resonated with me in a way in which I'm still talking about it today. You see what I'm getting at? I think this is true of us when it comes to the cross. That in our culture, in our society, we have been so uh, overstimulated with the idea of the cross. Like many of you probably have one around your neck right now. We, We see it on Sundays when we go to church. Yeah, I called some of y'all out right there on the cross thing. I see it. We see it all the time when we go to church. It's on like home decorations. Like we see it all the time and we hear about it all the time. And my fear is that we have seen it so much that we have grown desensitized to the significance of it. That the cross was literally the means by which we were reconciled to God. 
where we went from having no way to get back to God and because of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross that we now have a way to get back to God. The reason that this is such good news for us is because of the cross. That on the cross, Jesus accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. That's a way to get to God. Verse 21 says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, we need to stop there because that might offend some of you. Okay? It says uh, that in this verse, basically, Paul is going, There is nothing that we could do to save ourselves. It says we were alienated and we were full of evil deeds, to which you might reply, like, Okay, like, but I'm not that bad. Like, I'm really a good person. And I may have made some bad mistakes, but at the end of the day, like, if you were to weigh good and bad, like, I really am a good person. And the only problem with that is that, listen, good people don't get into heaven. Perfect people do. The standard for getting into heaven for a restored relationship with God is not good. It's not like I did enough things or good things so that my good outweighs my bad. It's not, oh, I have to be in the like, best 50% of the people in the world. That's not the standard. The standard is what God says is be holy as I am holy. The standard is righteousness. You have to be righteous. Now, does anybody want to volunteer themselves for that category? Not me, right? No, none of us in here would. Because the problem is that when we're measured up to the standard of a holy God, each and every one of us all fall short. Matter of fact, if you were to claim to be righteous, that all of a sudden, by definition, makes you self-righteous. And we're all the way back where we started, right? Like, that's, it, it just does not work. There's nothing that we can do. Romans chapter 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Every sin, everything that we've done wrong, no matter the magnitude, no matter the consequences, they all render us unrighteous and create a chasm between us and God. And this is where Jesus comes in. And this is where you have to answer the question, what will you do with Jesus? Verse 22 says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That, that verse is huge. It says that we were reconciled. That's a big word that simply means that what took place on the cross was the fulfillment of a rescue plan. Uh, of that, us going from that place of unrighteous, no way uh, to, to cross that chasm that was created between us and God because of our sin. That there was a way that was made for us unrighteous, worthless, according to Romans 3 people, to get from there to here. And the, the way that that took place is by what took place on the cross. See, the cross was a fulfillment of a rescue plan that cost Jesus his life. It was through Jesus' death. Listen, not Jesus falling asleep, not Jesus falling into a trance. Jesus gave up his life, spilled his own blood for you 
and for me. And so when, when he was, he, he did not just die, but he was raised from the dead three days later, and he did not wake up, he did not come out of a trance, he was resurrected holding the keys to the grave in his hands. We were reconciled to God. And, and reconciled, is it, it simply means to be made right. And there's three things in this verse uh, that we see that is true about us because of the fact that we were reconciled. That, that we're holy. So we're, simply, that means clean, pure, and without blemish. Uh, that we're blameless. That we are complete. That we are intact. And, and third, that we're above reproach. That we're not accused. In other words, what, what, that, what those three things mean is that you have the ability to approach the throne. As an unrighteous person, you have the ability to approach the throne of a righteous God. Despite all the wrong that you've done, all the sin that you've committed, and experience an eternity with him in a place called heaven. You don't get what you deserve. We're holy and blameless, and we're above reproach all because of the cross. But we don't just get that by default. We have to answer the question, what will you do with Jesus? And the good news is there's not like some series of hoops we have to jump through. There, there's not some like crazy set of checkpoints that we have to accomplish. The only, the only thing that we have to do to get to that place where we can become holy, blameless, and above reproach, that we can experience eternity in heaven forever with God, with Jesus, is to place our trust in the cross and what he did for us. So, so what I want to do is I want to invite the band uh, to come back up and, and join us. We're about to enter into a, into a time of response. And if there's one thing that you're left with after hearing all of this, I, I know it was deep. I know that there was, there was so much that was thrown at you. And I want to thank you for, for hanging with me. But if there's anything that, that you leave with, it's simply this. That Jesus comes before everything in my life because I came before everything in his. If you turn back to the book of Matthew, and you don't have to turn there, I'll, I'll read this for you. You turn back to the book of Matthew, specifically the chapters where um, Jesus ha had been arrested at this point, And he now faced uh, a trial. He was he's standing before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. This is Matthew chapter 27. We find Jesus at this point in his life, again, on trial before Pontius Pilate. And what, what goes on in the book of Matthew is that there's this tradition that those who were condemned to death, that were in line to be crucified, that the people got to choose one prisoner to go free. One prisoner. And so Pilate has gone through and he, he's basically tried Jesus. He's asked him, are, are all these things that they say about you true? To which Jesus replies, you've said so. And basically uh, claims then and there that he is God. And, and in that moment, Pilate looks at the crowd of people and he goes, what do you want me to do? I get to release one prisoner. It's, it's either this guy, Jesus, who in my eyes has done nothing wrong, or it's this guy, Barabbas, who was a murderer. 
leader of insurrections. I, I mean, a true criminal. And so what happens? Pilate asks the crowd. He says, who do you want me to release? And of course, they shout, Barabbas. And, and in the same exact way that Jesus took our place that we did not deserve, it, just like here, Jesus stands in the place of Barabbas. Jesus, done nothing wrong, stands in the place of a criminal so that a criminal could walk free. And that criminal is you and me. But there's something interesting here in, in this passage. See, when the crowd chose Barabbas in Matthew 27, there's this incredible verse that, that I love. And, and it's Pilate talking to, to the, the crowd that was witnessing this trial. It says, The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? What do you want me to do with this man named Jesus? It's the most important question you can ever ask yourself. What will you do with this man called Jesus? You, you can either deny him, and, and denying him here on this earth, on this side of eternity, means spending an eternity separated from him in a place called hell. Or you can choose to be indifferent. Do nothing with him here, which still results in denying him uh, once you have left this earth and stand before Jesus and spending an eternity separated from him. Or you can choose to follow him. You can place your trust in what we talked about Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And in doing so, you can spend eternity with him in a place called heaven forever. So the question tonight is very simple. What will you do with this man they call Jesus? Some of you tonight, it looks like making that decision, following Jesus for the very first time. For others of you, uh, that decision uh, man, I genuinely believe that there's a, there's a crowd of people in this room. When we talk about Jesus having the supremacy in your life, you've made that decision to follow him, but you've not taken the next step of obedience in baptism. As followers of Jesus, we believe that once you've experienced salvation, that the very next step of obedience is to be baptized, which is, is, is very simply uh, identifying with Jesus in his death. You go under the water and identifying with him in his in, uh, new life, and you come out of the water raised to new life. There's no power in baptism, but it is simply an expression of the decision that you have made before the church, before a community of believers. And so if, if, if you're in here and you're like, man, I have followed Jesus, I've made that decision, but I've never been baptized, that's part of the decision of placing him in a place of supremacy in your life. So if, if you need to make either of those two decisions, uh, we're going to have some leaders back here in this back corner, and we would love for you to stop by during this next response song. And if, if not then, then stop by after service, and we would love to talk to you about what those next steps would look like. Matter of fact, we have a, we're going to have a baptism day this Sunday at church, at Christ's place. And, and if you've never made the decision to be baptized, we want to invite you to join us there. Others of you, 
you, you've made both of those decisions. And you are in a place where Jesus is still not supreme in your life. He, he does not hold the place of authority. And tonight, you need to respond by praying that he would reveal to you what it is that's pulled him off of his rightful place. And you would make the changes in your life to put him back where he belongs. So what I want to invite us all to do is to stand. The band's going to lead us in a time of worship. And I want you to respond as you feel led. Again, man, if you want to make the decision to follow Jesus for the first time today or, or to follow Jesus in baptism, I'll be back in this back corner and would love to talk to you more about that. Anne Marie will be back there as well. But I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing together. Respond as you feel led. Father, we love you. God, we're so grateful that you sent your son, Jesus, that, that we've been reconciled to you. Jesus, we, we pray that you would move in hearts, that you would convict lives, and that people would leave this place never looking the same because they know who you are, and they've made the right decision as to what they're going to do with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.